So I took this old shoe box and I had labeled and converted it into a makeshift piggy bank. Anytime we got money from our birthdays, Chinese New Year's, or for doing chores around the house, we put it into that box. And we both did this, but I forgot to inform and tell my brother I only did it once. It's his fault, he didn't check. Well, after months and months of saving, we finally did it. We had enough to go out and purchase a box of cards. And my brother was none the wiser that he funded the majority of it. He was just happy that we achieved our goal. And I know what you're thinking because it's what I would be thinking. That's whack. Well, was it though? We don't know. Actually, we do know. Like in hindsight, I think we can all uh, safely say that that was really messed up because here are the facts. One, I took advantage of a system that I had put into place. And two, the poor victim of my manipulation was none other than my own brother. This was not just theft, this was theft within the family. You know, you rob a bank and that's bad. But if you also rob your grandma too, well then you're the worst, right? Now, as silly as my opening story may be, it's a serious issue when we grow up, when we know better, and yet commit the same kind of fraud, a greater one. It is no joking or laughing matter when we steal from God. And the Israelites, as we've just read, are guilty of this. It's not a huge surprise to us because our time spent in the book of Malachi hasn't been the most positive read We've been ushered into the courtroom of God where the people's failures are paraded before us. A case after case is lofted to condemn this nation for their lack of reverence and devotion. The evidence has been presented that God chooses and loves his people. But on the other hand, the people, well, they offer sick animals. They depart from his instruction. They divorce their spouses they are even complacent with their impurity. The contrast is jarring. A covenant love should be followed by a match with a committed life. And yet, that's not what we see, what we observe from the people of God. Tonight's passage only adds to the rap sheet of their unfaithfulness. Tonight, God points to their mismanagement of resources, of his resources. And so for our time, we're going to break down our passage into two main headings, just two main headings, pretty basic, relationship and resources, relationship and resources. And we're going to walk through our passage in that order because the first relationship will dictate the latter, resources. How does this work? You might have heard that quote by Augustine, love God and do whatever you please. Because when you love God, that becomes the filter, the guideline for everything else, including how we steward what we have. Our relationship with God is primary. And once that is settled and firm, then all the other pieces of the puzzle will fit in properly. In fact, we usually run into problems when we flip the script, when we get it backwards. When resources sit at the top, that's likely when our own relationship with God is off. But when God sits on the throne, 
then we begin to understand even our possessions in light of who he is. Which is why our passage starts the way it does. Before God even gets to calling out the Israelites for their thievery, he addresses the troubling state of their relationship. Look again at verse 6. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. Our first main heading, relationship. Now to us, again, this seems like a strange way to start, right? If you're going to talk about stewardship or money, why not go directly to their bank accounts or credit card statements? But it's a relationship before resources because your relationships have a profound effect upon your resources. You see, when it comes to what you have, how you spend, why you give, there's always a circle of people factored into the decision process decision-making process. You know, if you're on your own, your circle is small, maybe just you and a pet. If you have roommates, your circle gets a little bigger, right? Because even in hosting, say, a dinner party or a game night, you have to run it by your roommates, make sure they're cool with it. And through life, this circle can keep broadening, keep expanding to include more people, marriage, kids, a community. You soon discover that you don't live on an island. How you handle your resources is couched within the larger context of your relationships. You see, you probably shouldn't impulsively blow an entire paycheck on a new entertainment system when you have a family of four. You can't or probably shouldn't just decide on when to uh, participate in a spontaneous weekend vacation while leaving your spouse at home. Even a selfish person is evaluating his choices in light of people. The only difference is they're just working with one variable themselves. But for the Christian, there should always at least be two. We are accountable to another. Our lives are to be committed to God. So God reminds the Israelites of their relationship the people of God need to realize why their actions, their lack of wise management, why it's all so wicked, foolish, and offensive. It's because of the one they've offended. They have disregarded God, and he sets the record straight. Here's the truth. They would have nothing without him. In fact, their very existence hinges upon him. Verse 6 contains strong language to surface this point. Literally, it reads, since I, I, the Lord, do not change, therefore so you, you sons of Jacob, are not consumed. This is cause and effect. Cause and effect. That the Israelites' preservation hangs on God's unchanging essence. He is what theologians call immutable, that God doesn't waver or diverge from his nature, his character, his eternal purposes. He is not unstable, acting on a fit of rage or sadness. He's not inconsistent, exacting justice here, but then unfair in other situations. No, God is unchanging. He is a rock. And this is good news for the Israelites because it means they are not consumed. 
Well, why should they be? We'll continue on in verse 7. From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. So here's the reason. You see the connection? Israel didn't just slip up one time. They didn't just accidentally disobey God. This was their specialty. They were experts in disobedience. Ever since they came into existence as a nation, they continually broke God's commandments, ignoring his statutes. All they deserve, therefore, is punishment, destruction. They should have been obliterated, wiped out, just like Edom. The only thing that keeps the Israelites from being consumed is nothing inherent in them, but in God. The Lord does not change. He keeps his covenant. He is relentless and fierce in his love. He has pledged himself to be in relationship with these people. And that's precisely why God petitions as he does in the rest of verse 7. He says, return to me. And I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. You and I need to hear the tenderness of this verse. And God is not heavy-handed or overly harsh in tone. He beckons them, almost begging them to return. God's inclination is to forgive. I will return to you. And he takes the first step by even initiating the conversation His heart is for his people. And we, as New Testament believers, as people who hold all of Scripture, know this the best. You know what my favorite part is in the parable of the prodigal son? It's not just the welcoming, the embracing, and the celebrating. My favorite part is that the father's looking. He's looking. After the prodigal squanders all his riches, after weeks and months and years pass by, after he seemingly burned all the bridges, his dad doesn't give up. He's searching on the horizon. That while the prodigal is still a long ways off, the father sees him and his heart is overwhelmed with compassion. I love that. And no matter how far we run, it's almost as at a turn. God is right there. He's ready for our return, wanting it more than we do. And this is not a grace we are to abuse, but to appreciate with repentance and obedience. This word for return here is the same word used in the Old Testament for repent, which is a fitting illustration We turn from what's wrong and the errors of our sinfulness to turn, to return to God. What's right, good, what he commands, all for the sake of a relationship. Praxis, do these verses warm your heart? Do they provide comfort for your fickle and sinful ways? God does not change, we do, but there's hope. Because God does not change, we are not consumed. Though separated by centuries from the people in this passage, the God of Israel is the same God we worship today. In and through Christ, God's words come out and grab hold of us. Return. Repent. Your life all the way down to your resources 
will always be warped and broken the more you flee from God. From the point of salvation to the stewardship of our possessions, the solution is never to run further away in disobedience, but in humility to turn to him. I mean, consider the magnitude of this wonderful truth. He does not change. Do you know why you're not divinely crushed or consumed the next moment you sin or when you falter in unfaithfulness? It's because he does not change. Look, if I was God and I had to put up and deal with me, my patience would have expired long, long ago. But praise God, I'm not God. Praise God, he is. And that he doesn't throw in the towel upon his children. No, he is long-suffering, faithful, loving, honest, trustworthy, truthful, all to persuade us to return. You know, one of the clear signs of a maturing Christian is not only the absence of sin, but what do you do when you do sin? Where and who do you go to? It's telling of the kind of relationship you have with God. Now, make no mistake, God doesn't dismiss the people's sin or merely sweep it under the rug. He's blunt with them. It's interesting because back in verse 6, the Israelites are referred to as the children of Jacob. I think that's deliberate. It foreshadows God's contention and displeasure with his people. Some names are synonymous with their greatest flaws. We know of Judas, the betrayer, Thomas, the doubter. What is Jacob infamous for? Jacob, the cheat. And the Israelites had walked down the path of their ancestor until it had become so integral, so normal, that they were callous to it. They assumed God's charge can't possibly be against them. Which is why they ask at the end of verse 7, how shall we return? You know, kind of like, what have we done wrong, God? Well, God doesn't mince words in verse 8. Will man rob God? And I'm sure all the Israelites would have responded in unison because they knew the correct answer. Of course not. No. Everyone knows it's bad to rob God. And it's the perfect setup. Because God clobbers them with the next accusation. He says, yet you are robbing me. You hear that the tense of that verb? Robbing. It's something ongoing. The Israelites are so entrenched, so knee-deep into their sin, that they're oblivious to it. How have we robbed you? And God lays it out for them in the final sentence of verse 8. In your tithes and contributions. Having established the foundation, we now see how relationship with God should form and fashion the stewardship of resources. So now our second main heading, resources, resources. Some background info is needed. What's this about tithes and contributions? It sounds so archaic. Well, a tithe literally means a tenth, a tenth. And it was Jewish law to apportion 10% of your resources, usually crops from the harvest or any business transactions you, <clears throat> you did. And you can almost think of a tithe as a tax. And on top of tithing, there were contributions to be made throughout the year. 
Sometimes you'd pledge a Thanksgiving offering or you bring funds to assist and provide relief for the poor. And calculate it all together, scholars estimate that anywhere between 22% on the conservative end, all the way up to 27% of a person's resources were given back to the nation. And this custom was crucial. It was important. It was essential for the survival and the function of Israel. Provisions were required for temple upkeep, for religious activity. You see, in the entire tribe, the Levites were tasked with overseeing all the rituals and all the practices of this nation. Since this was a large and sacred undertaking, they devoted all their attention and efforts to this ministry, which is why they didn't own land. They didn't have time to farm and harvest food for themselves. The other tribes, the other 11, were responsible with shouldering that load, with meeting that need. The Levites then, their well-being and service, their very lives, were at the mercy of the people's obedience and generosity. Now we can begin to understand the severity of what was happening. When God indicts the nation for robbing him, it sheds light. The people were holding back their tithes and contributions, leaving the Levites out to dry, lack of food and sustenance, and therefore hindering, preventing them from doing their job, supervising the house of the Lord, facilitating the worship of God. And God rebukes the people because he sees it all. He traces it all back to the source. They had full pockets for themselves, but empty hearts for God. And listen, this wasn't flagrant highway robbery. Theirs was much more insidious and sneaky. It was easily justifying how they could cut corners. You know, well, who's keeping track? No one is telling the number of sheep I have or how much uh, my grain weighs. So I'll just give less Unless, and that's how you eventually end up with lame animals in chapter one and spare change here in chapter three. But hey, they thought to themselves, at least God should be happy with something. There was a huge hole to their logic. They had assumed, they had presumed that partial obedience would round up to full obedience. But God rounds down. Because in his eyes, half-hearted worship is no worship at all. It's not like God is in a bind and pressed for finances. He has no need for copper coins or bountiful crops. He could have himself just provided miraculously for the Levites. But just like how prayer is really more for us than it is for God, so is the opportunity to give, to participate in generosity, to be a steward of our resources. He was presenting his people with the opportunity to relish their relationship with him more than their resources. And yet they failed to seize it. They missed it. That's why we all get the idiom, put your money where your mouth is. Talk is cheap, but money, money can be loud. I mean, you don't have to tell me what you prize in your life. In some sense, I only need to look at your receipts. 
the Israelites were guilty of empty speech and the consequences were drastic. Look at verse 9. The God says, you are cursed with a curse for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. And so God meets them head on, hitting them where it hurts. Since they were clinging on so tightly to their land and to the fruit of their labor, God takes it all away. God curses those very things. If you skip down to verse 11, we learn part of God's discipline was sending devourers, which were probably insects like locusts, to eat up their crops, to plague their harvest. God was punishing them, not because he was cruel and mean, but so that they would return, so that they would repent and obey. A thriving happens with God, not apart from him. I like how one commentator put it. Thus, no one robs God without robbing himself at the same time. I think we can echo that sentiment. We see the parallels in our own lives. Obedience to God is always for our good. We go astray to our own demise. And what's crazy, what's crazy is we know this. Lounging in laziness leads us to regret a wasted day. Indulging in lust leaves us feeling shallower, emptier. And missing out on moments to be generous only tightens the grip of greed. In our folly, we do it to ourselves. In our disobedience, we squander the grace to grow. God has always proposed a better way. He says in verse 10 to these people, bring the full tithe. Don't hold it back. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house for the Levites and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need, I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then, then all nations will call you blessed. For you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. This is their wake-up call. Exercise faith. Obey. God charges them to right their wrongs, to put him to the test. If you look again at verse 10, this is audacious. This is bold, blatant. Maybe we're a bit puzzled because we think, well, doesn't this go against the rules? We recall when Jesus is tempted in the wilderness, he rebukes the devil and he says to the devil, you should not put the Lord, your God, to the test. Quoting the Old Testament, Deuteronomy, the law. So what's going on here? Well, there's a key difference. The Israelites, they are not putting God to the test. God is putting himself on trial. The people are not initiating this. God is inviting them. It is part of their restoration, the process by which they return that in their repentance and obedience, their faith would be stretched and strengthened when they see God true to his word. Friends, do you realize that one of the reasons, that's one of the reasons behind God's, God's call for repentance? It's not some brutal method to pin you into submission, to humiliate you until you finally admit you're wrong. It's so that you learn a better way. Sin is a misplacing of our faith. Repentance 
affords us with the chance to recalibrate it and put it back on God. While I think these verses here are descriptive, not prescriptive, meaning I don't think we're giving today permission to test God in the same uh, same exact way, same unique way, like where we bring in bags of money to church and then all of a sudden God is going to prosper us. Uh, the principle, though, is still not lost. We're not missing out because we have more opportunities. We have something more sure. Christian, we can go straight to God's word and see him hold true to his promises. And this is something he invites us to do. But when you're racked with anxiety from coronavirus, from unemployment, from politics, from singleness, test him. Test him on the peace that he can give. Have you ever left a time of prayer more worried? When you feel too timid to share your faith with your coworker or your agnostic family member, test him on the boldness he can give. Will he not supply both the courage and the words? When you're tempted to be selfish with your things, with your stuff, test him on the joy that he can give you when you give. Can you outgive God? Is his grace not sufficient? Will God be a liar? Bring yourself to him and see if God will not answer. Faith can't be strengthened until it's exercised. So flex it by taking God at his word. Now up to this point, most of my application has been broadened. But let me hone in on tithing since that's what this passage is specifically discussing. And I know this can be a touchy and taboo subject, but I think it serves us well to consider how we can honor God even with our finances. Now, a common question we might have is whether we are under the obligation to tithe. You know, are Christians today still mandated to give 10%? I would say no. And you search the New Testament, you find no direct instruction in the epistles commanding us to tithe. Instead, we have principles like those found in 2 Corinthians, where we are to give proportionally and sacrificially, meaning that it isn't about a strict percentage. It should be costly, though. Our giving should be costly. It should, in some ways, hurt. As new covenant believers, as those under grace and not under the law, we're no longer bound to ancient customs and statutes of giving a tenth. Now, let me pump the brakes, because before you breathe a sigh of relief and, and throw dollar bills into the air, let me caution, okay? Our liberty shouldn't then give us license to be stingy. We are not freed so that we can so that we can just do whatever we want. We are freed so that we can be called to something even more. Remember Jesus' attitude towards the law. He says, I came not to abolish it, but to fulfill it. And then he announces something intriguing. He says this in Matthew 5, verse 20. He says, for I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, scribes and Pharisees who are experts, meticulous pedantic on keeping the law, unless your righteousness exceeds that, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And then for the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, 
And Jesus unpacks this idea by implying it. He preaches, you have heard it said, you shall not murder. But I say to you, everyone who is angry is just as guilty. You have heard it said, you shall love your neighbor. But I say to you, love your enemies. There is an elevation, an amplification, if you will. The trajectory Jesus takes goes above and beyond He moves from mere external compliance and drills the truth down into us until it's internalized, until it invades our minds and our hearts, until it reaches the inner person. So yes, we aren't Israel of old. We aren't obligated, required to keep the Mosaic law. But as the church, we are under the law of Christ. And the standard Jesus establishes is higher than anything before. This pattern, therefore, should guide our thinking, our approach to money and finances, how we handle our resources. If this is the trajectory that Jesus sets, well, then it seems incongruous and odd if our bar for giving is actually lower than the Israelites right? And I'm generalizing here, but their floor should not be our ceiling. Now, some of you may be struggling financially or without income, and I would say you may be called to give less for the season or in some other creative ways, but that should be the exception, not the norm. We who stand on this side of the cross who have beheld the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, who have inherited all the spiritual blessings and gifts that saints of old could only long for and imagine, shouldn't we, of all people, be eager to bring more to God, not less than the Israelites? I hope this challenges you, as it does for me. It's good to wrestle with this because then we're engaged. We're thoughtful. No longer just dismissing our resources and writing them off as just material and earthly matters. No, they can be avenues through which we worship God. Avenues through which we love others by pointing them towards Christ. Practice, take stock of your wealth. I think this is super relevant for our group. Because this is the life stage where most of you are or will be eventually on your own, independent. In fact, some of you are working at your first real full-time job and you're making more money than you've ever seen in your life. Build good habits now. Steward your finances so that you don't get swept away with the tide of the world or sheer consumerism. For others of you, maybe you're on the older side so you're higher up on the ladder. You've made great progress in your career. Maybe you're hitting a senior management level and your income is at a pay grade that you never thought was possible. Praise God for that. But maybe you're positioned to therefore give more. 15%, 25%, dare I say even 50%. Could you support more missionaries? or help those who are struggling to make ends meet. Just because you make more doesn't mean you have to keep more. After all, in this life, the Bible often describes Christians 
as managers, as stewards, as servants. Perhaps the penetrating question then is not how much of my money should I give to God? The question should be how much of God's money should I keep for myself? And this outlook, this shift, this generous spirit doesn't have to be restricted just to liquid assets. Resources can be more than the numbers on your paycheck. It's whatever you have at your disposal in this stage of life. Some of you have more time. Could you be investing in the church, picking up groceries for the single parent or checking in on older folks who are lonely? Some of you have ample amounts of energy. It's like you're always on. Can you spend it on children's ministry? You know, you meet your rival, I'm sure. Some of you are super talented and organized. Can you be generous with your skills to foster and build community here in Praxis? Whatever it may be, God has entrusted you with resources so that you won't rob him, but use it to worship him and help others to do the same. You see, this is where we come full circle, back to the start, from our resources back to our relationships. It's about a stewardship that magnifies your savior, that money, time, talents. It's not about fattening our wallets or flexing our comforts, but different platforms by which we magnify God's worth. Our possessions in this world is meant to show that what we treasure the most is him. Many years ago when I was in seminary, I was a youth intern at another church. And as an intern, I wasn't bawling and raking in the cash. Most of my monthly stipend had to be uh, go towards paying for my theological education. Well, after youth group uh, one Friday night, a little junior high girl approached me and she just handed me an envelope. And I was suspicious, you know, like, what's going on? What are you doing here? So I opened up this envelope and inside was well over $100 with a note attached saying uh, to, to pay for seminary. And she had been saving up her allowance for months. Now, my gut reaction was to refuse it. I couldn't, I can't take a little girl's money, right? I was also nervous because if people found out, I might get fired because they might assume that I was running some sort of Ponzi scheme in youth group. So I tried to give it back to her. You know, thanks, I appreciate it, but I just can't accept this. To which she replied, it's not for you, it's for God. And I was floored, I was blasted, like, oh, freak. Not only was this little girl helping me, putting me through seminary, she had also rebuked me because she was right. For the Christian, we may have a lot, but truth be told, it's all God's and for his purposes. In my short time back at Lighthouse, I've been encouraged by your example of this. You know, I haven't even met some of you in person, but I've seen and heard of your stewardship, your service, care packages, baked goods and meals delivered, taking up a collection for car repairs. And in the end, it's not like these gifts are ultimate and significant and will last forever. The food is gone once it's eaten. 
The repaired car will still break down one day. But what's lasting is the message these resources can preach. When driven by Christ, they tell a better story than just needs being met. They've been tied to the gospel. An everlasting story of generosity and grace of a God who would give us his own son to meet our greatest need. So let us go and do likewise with all that he has given us. Let's pray. Oh, Father, I think of your word, how it tests to us that we are rich in Christ, that you who would not spare your own son, but give him up for us all. Lord, there's nothing you would withhold for our good. And that means you lavish upon us that you only know how to be generous with us. You've provided us uh, for us with a surplus that we may be dispensers of your grace, not to hoard it for ourselves, but to be conduits, pictures of the gospel as we die to self so that others might live in Christ. And so Lord, help us, humble us, Lord, that we may weed out any selfishness that resides, any greediness that, um, that grips our hearts, that we may be like you, Lord, because we cannot outgive you. And so for that, we, we give you thanks and we pray that your word would continue to have its uh, perfect effect upon our hearts, that you would transform us and make us more like your son, that we would honor you and love others. We thank you for your word and praise things in Jesus' name. Amen.